Have you ever taken a rock and rolled it over and be shocked about what you find? Well, in this case, we're going to do that with the issue of affordable housing. Affordable housing is critical to our lives. And in Canada, we've got big problems. So today, we're going to dig deep into what that issue is about and what are the solutions. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Today, we're going to talk about housing affordability in Canada. It's a crisis in many markets in our country. And with me here today are two esteemed guests to talk about this issue. The first one is Wendell Cox, a senior fellow with the Frontier Institute, and also a founding uh, senior fellow with the Urban Reform Institute. And secondly, I have Charles Blaine, the president of the Urban Reform Institute and an expert on housing affordability. So welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you because this topic of housing affordability is very important. So I'm going to ask a really basic question. What do we mean by housing affordability, Wendell? Well, we mean housing that is affordable to middle income people. If we go back to 1971, the, the 1971 Canadian census, if you look at the metropolitan areas that were included in the census question, the highest um, priced income ratio, we call it the median multiple, the highest priced income ratio was about 3.9 in Vancouver and Toronto was very similar. That is the house prices, the median house price was almost four times the median household income. Today in Vancouver, the CMA, it's 12. Sorry, what's the CMA? What does that mean? Census metropolitan area. That's, okay. That's, that's Canada's, that, that's Stats Canada term for metropolitan area. Um, the, um, um, and, and, and in Toronto, the Toronto CMA also, the metropolitan area, it's 9.5. So that's telling us that in 50 years, the price of housing relative to incomes has tripled or more. Now, there's no reason for that. Cars haven't tripled, haven't done that. Food hasn't done that, nothing else. And, and essentially what's happened is we have, have seen a regulatory structure applied in our two largest metropolitan areas, Toronto and Vancouver, as well as Montreal and some other places, and, and basically destroyed housing affordability. And I would urge, I would suggest indeed that the housing affordability crisis has created a cost of living crisis. And I can go into more detail on that, okay, but that's so, sort of the beginning. So the punchline is that you're saying the price of housing has skyrocketed essentially way faster than any other cost in our life. And regulations basically have created that problem. Is that right, uh, Charles? Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, and, and what's interesting is, you know, there's always this conversation about affordable housing and housing affordability. And instead of what we see in a lot of local governments, they levy these regulations that drive up costs and erode housing affordability. And instead of addressing those regulations, they then shift to affordable housing and try to subsidize the housing that they mm. are providing um, and have people become dependent on that supply rather than doing the things that can actually address the cost of living. So I think Wendell's 100% 
correct. Um, you know, we see it all across where, I, where I'm based in Houston and, and all across Texas um, and the United States. We see local governments loving heavy handed regulations that are just driving up the cost of living. Okay, so the bottom line is that, you know, it's interesting when I bought my first house, it was about two and a half times my income at the time. It was wonderful. I could buy this wonderful house. It was on like a, a quarter of an acre. It was a lovely home. And, you know, it's just shocking what that price of that same house is today. And that's in the Waterloo area. That's where I bought my, my first home. And it, so what's changed then? Why has this become such a train wreck? Not in all, but most Canadian markets, people can't even buy a home. It's ridiculous. It's very simple. And it goes back to London 1947 with the British Town and Country Planning Act. The view that we must stop urban sprawl. Urban sprawl is worse than anything, okay? And to do it, we're going to draw a line around the city and not allow development to occur on the outside. And we created a terrible problem. It's so the wait, same. Wait, wait, you said draw a line? Like, what do you mean? Like a law? That says you can't. Yeah, you cannot. You, you you cannot develop outside the periphery of the, the, the that the planning agency or the or an often oftentimes the provincial government has established. Now this happened. The start in Canada was Vancouver in the early 1970s, and at that point, the median multiple, the price to income ratio, was about four in Vancouver. It's now, as I say, twelve, three times. You have people, young people can't afford houses. They can't afford rents. Yeah. It's incredible. No, it's, it's, it's rather, yeah, it's, it's like when the, when OPEC decides they're not going to ship any more oil. Now, you all aren't old enough to remember the 70s, but I remember a weekend in Los Angeles when two gas stations were open in the whole metropolitan area, when the price of gasoline was going up because it was being rationed. And that's the problem here. And what we find is at these the, these um, these boundaries, they're urban growth boundaries. They're sometimes called green belts, or they're called agricultural reserves. You find that the land price goes up eight to twenty times, so, so that all of us all of a sudden the principal issue in house construction and value is not the construction; it's the land. So to paraphrase Shakespeare, we've seen the enemy, and it's us. Like it's like government, we're shooting our own. Like it's a horrible analogy, but we're we're making the problem. Is that right, Charles? Like we've got we've gone overboard on these zoning bylaws to try to control all the land use, and you know everybody cares about good land use and the environment, but we've gone overboard. Is that right, Charles? Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and you can see that all over. I mean, I, I Wendell makes a great point about these urban growth boundaries. And even in areas where we don't have kind of hard and fast rules for urban growth boundaries, you still you still see this discouraging effect of trying to keep people inside of, a, of an area. I mean, just outside of Austin, Texas, the capital of Texas, um, our, our counties aren't allowed to regulate the same way that cities are. So a lot of development happens in what's called the unincorporated area of the county. But in Austin, what we see is that the city then started buying up land outside of the city and saving it for environmental usages so that people then could not build residential development. Wait, you're saying that the city, this sounds like many Canadian <laughs> cities, they buy up the land so people can't live there. Yeah. So then yep. the price goes up. It's not complicated, and right? Artificially inflating the price and, and they hold on to it and, you know, they put preserves there and all these other things, which is very nice. But what they're doing is they're trying to keep people inside of these cities, which is driving up the costs. And I mean, we see it in, in all 
cities here in Texas, but it's certainly across the country. Um, and, and, you know, I think Wendell hits the nail on the head with the urban growth boundary. So, so why are these decision makers doing it? Like I, I get socialism. They want to control everything. They want to control, you know, uh, what gas, what kind of, you know, car you drive, what kind of gas stove you use. Um, like it, it's just unbelievable. They want to control everything. They want so in this case they're trying to control every house that you live in. Whether you you know you you stack people up in these tiny condominiums that you would never raise a family in. Um, but that's is that what's driving this essentially? Well, actually, you know these people, these planners, okay, yeah. they they do have good intentions. They think they're in, they're improving the city. Right. And the interesting thing is a lot of places in Canada and in the United States, Australia, around the world, uh, they've established uh, provisions to expand these urban growth boundaries so that they don't create this housing affordability mm-hmm. problem. But they always seem to forget to do that. Right. And, 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 and so and they don't study economics. Uh, you know, uh, Alain Berteau, who was a principal planner in the World Bank for for years, Mm-hmm. Uh, has written a book in which he says the principal problem we have is that the planners do not look at economic impacts. It's not taught in the in, in the in the planning schools or anything. So it's a real problem. They think they're improving the city. In my view, you can judge the success of a city by how well off its people are. Okay. And if it's, if its people are paying the kind of prices you're paying in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal, it's not a successful city. So you have a group of people we're talking a very tiny number, like it's like a 1% kind of thing that are driving these decisions, this kind of utopian perspective, right? And they, you know, I'm sure many of them have very good intentions, obviously, but they are making a mess out of housing in our country, aren't they? I, I don't Absolutely. like is that a fair comment, Charles. Yeah. And, I, and you know, it, it's intent is great. They, I, I do think many of them have good intent, but they refuse to look at the outcomes of the policy that they support. And they refuse to take that into consideration and, and dare to question if the policy that they're supporting are actually um, helping the people that they intend to help. And I think you said something really interesting, which is that it's a small 1% of people. And it is, I mean, it's they're squeaky wheels, so they get the oil, but they really are one percenters in, in kind of the grander sense as well, because these are people who can afford to purchase or, or rent mm-hmm. um, in, in these places. And what they're doing is they're eroding the affordability for those who cannot afford to. The people who do need those those you know median-priced homes and still need the opportunity that they were able to take advantage of years ago. And so they're really kind of ma- majorly focused on their intent, but they refuse to acknowledge that the outcomes aren't, aren't what they should be. Well, it's very powerful. I literally this last week um, talked with a friend of mine who is an elderly woman. She is marvelous and she's in big trouble because as interest rates are rising now, she said, I may lose my home. I can't afford to move to another um, home. And I, I'm just praying that the interest rates won't go, go up. So if I know that no one has a crystal ball, Wendell and Charles, but if you had to kind of predict where things are at, like, are they going to get much worse? Are we going to see people lose their homes? Like, Inflation, core inflation is still at a relatively high level. Um, I haven't seen the, the stats just recently in the United States, but certainly in Canada, our, our core inflation is still relatively high and we'll probably see interest rates creep up still more. I, I'm really concerned about, is it going to get worse? 
Well, yes, yes, indeed, it's going to get worse. I mean, first of all, even without the interest rate charges, the demand far exceeds the supply. And, and, and so long as the demand exceeds the supply, the cost of housing is going to rise faster than incomes. However, you've got a different situation in Canada than we have in the United States with your renewable loans. You know, you, you probably have to go in to get a new loan every five mm-hmm. years or so. And when you do that, your interest rate is going to be the prevailing rate. One of the fortunate things we have in this country, in the United States, is the 30-year loan. So right. if you sign up today for a loan at 5% or whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. you've got that loan for 30 years. And you, aren't gonna, you don't need to worry about the, the interest rates going up. And so in Canada, yeah, I believe you, of course, are going to see people lose their homes as a result of when they readjust their mortgage. But beyond that, the bigger longer term issue is that young people and immigrants and you have a strong pro-immigrant policy. Uh, Trudeau is talking about significantly increasing the immigration, the the skilled immigration from places like like India and China. Um, and 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 where are those people going to live? They're not. Where gonna are they going to live? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. There's not enough houses being built. Uh, are there? So is it going to get worse? So, Charles, what do you think? Well, yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, and, and, you know, right now in Texas, the legislature is in session and they're kind of combating this property tax reform proposal, two different proposals from from the chambers of the Texas legislature. But what they're focusing on is the increase in appraisal costs, particularly in the major cities and how appraisals have just skyrocketed in recent years. And I think that's what we're still seeing. I mean, certainly in Houston, and that is in large part because they are, and I think Houston less than some other cities, but in large part because they are forcing, they're, they're creating this false scarcity of land. When you could still be able to build out, you're forcing them to build in. And what you're seeing now is the appraisals go up. And so we have a lot of folks who are complaining about their appraisal costs, which then feed into their property taxes. And when they can't bear that burden anymore, then it just becomes something that they have to give up as well. And so I I think we're going to have that problem. And I think a lot of state legislatures in the United States are trying to figure out how to address that. But I don't know that they're addressing it fast enough because this, this cabal of urban planners, they're very effective at the local level and they're getting gains day by day while the state legislatures are, are taking a little longer to catch up. Okay. So just to recap then, because this is, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in this, but it's almost like a dog chasing its tail. You restrict the land because it's not so much the housing cost that's going up here. This is for me in a very important insight about this issue. It's the land. It's not so much the housing cost, right? And it's because government is restricting that land use. It's driving the price up. Like it's like a bubble, right? But in the meantime, another important revelation is that not all cities are a train wreck here. Like you've got the obvious ones in Canada and uh, the United States, like, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, and and uh, others jurisdictions where, where they're, they are really, really bad and they're just going to get worse. But who's doing it right? If you look at Canada and the United States, who's doing who gets it? Uh, like, is there anyone who said, wow, we actually need to supply land so people can actually build houses for people to what? Oh, yeah, live. Well, you know, right. unfortunately, nobody's doing it right because they thought about doing it right. And I, I okay. OK, and that's as true as it, in, in the United States as it is in Canada. People always ask me that question. I say, look to Kansas City, look to Texas, uh, look to Winnipeg, Calgary, and, and right. Edmonton, yes. even though they, they have some real bad policies, but but they haven't taken it uh, so far. But this issue of the cost of the houses is incredible. You think about 
you know, how you think about right now with respect to Vancouver, where the median multiple is about 12 and compare that to Winnipeg, where the median multiple is about four. I want people to understand that. So in Vancouver, approximately it's 12, 12, the the cost of the house is 12 times your income. That's crazy. No one can afford that. Pre-tax income. Um, and it's four times in, in in Winnipeg. Now, granted, that's a little high, but not terrible. Now, right. you know what? You can build a house in Winnipeg for maybe 20 percent mm-hmm. uh, less than in Vancouver. It is not. The, you can almost build the same house in Vancouver as you can in Winnipeg. OK, mm-hmm. or anywhere else in Canada, because mm-hmm. the cost of housing does not change because it's a construction and national market. So that's a big deal. All right. So is anyone doing any incisive solutions to this? Because honestly, Frontier, you, I mean, you, Wendell, Charles have been leaders articulating these facts and this analysis. And there's almost like among different parties, there's almost a kind of a um, people are almost tone deaf. They don't they, they think it's because of, well, um, it's it's foreign buyers. They're driving up the price. Well, not really. Um, no. At the heart of this is is government itself not opening up enough land. So is anyone starting to, you think, realize that that's the solution? Like in Toronto, for instance, we had the imposition of a, quote, green belt. So who's going to argue against a green belt? Except they were, that that's just what really created the, the housing crisis in that community. Now, right. I hear that the provincial government, namely Premier Doug Ford, is looking at um, adjusting that a little bit, but he's under incredible criticism. I know we've applauded that decision because you need land for people to to live. So is that a solution, Wendell, in your mind? Well, absolutely. And I've been very pleased with some of the proposals out of the Ford government because uh, they really do realize you've got to make land um, available. Uh, in terms of anything that really is happening of substance, I'm very pleased to report that the premier of South Australia, a laborite, mind you, um, is basically saying we've got to make we've got to make housing with yards available for for families. This guy's gone further than anybody I've seen anywhere in the world. The and my concern is, as I may, I should mention that you know. Right now in Canada, your metropolitan areas are losing populate are, are losing migrants to the rest of the country. The fastest growing parts of Canada are rural at this point. That's incredible. Never has happened like that well, for can years. You that? Well, the fastest that. growing parts of Canada are outside the metropolitan areas and the census agglomerations. The census agglomerations have urban co- have have ten thousand and above. Okay, the fastest growth is in places below 10,000 and that includes obviously much of the um, much of the uh, of the the rural area. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, that that has changed uh, very significantly at this point. Wow. The point is though that now as you all as Canadians know the maritimes and the Atlantic provinces including Newfoundland have not grown very fast. Nobody moves there. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Over the last five years, one of the leading importers of people from central Canada was Halifax, Nova Scotia, a beautiful community as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, and you have people beginning now to move to, to eastern Canada. Hmm. The problem is, however, we, my concern is we need to make sure 
that the public officials in that part of the country don't don't impose these kinds of policies because those policies have been imposed in places like Kitchener, Waterloo and Peterborough and Kingston and so on. And their housing affordability has become almost as bad as Toronto now because they have the same regulations. Wow. Okay, so we've got to really get on top of this. Otherwise, these policies are are hurting people's lives. Um, I just met a fellow, um, uh, you know, a few months ago. He's he's in my area and he can't he can't see a future of living here. He can't begin to afford a home. And he's an accountant of all things. He's got a relatively well-paying job. He's done everything right. He worked hard to go to school. We're destroying um, the Canadian dream. So meanwhile, uh, Charles, you live in a, as a dynamic city uh, called Houston, Texas. And I can't believe that they don't have any zoning bylaws. How the heck does it work in Houston? Do you have like a mishmash of everything? Is it chaos in Houston? <laughs> and no, not chaos at all. I mean, you find what you find in most cities. I mean, I think people kind of build sensibly. And, and yes, every now and then you'll find a kind of weird mishmash of something. Um, but generally speaking, people build sensibly. But we do still have um, a number of land use regulations that you will find kind of throughout the city code that are in a formalized zoning code um, and in communities that want just to maintain their their community sense they'll levy deed restrictions which you know the community collectively comes together and enforces their deed restrictions or things like that so it is developed interestingly um, and while we remain affordable we still have you know, similar issues that you find elsewhere. I mean, we have city council members who talk about how their staff isn't able to afford housing inside the city of Houston because of the, the increase in cost of living. And so they're looking outside as well. Um, and to, to a question that you, you posed before about is anyone doing it right? You know, I, one thing that we've seen and, and Wendell, uh, our organization has done research on this, is in our unincorporated areas. So in the areas of the county that aren't in the, in the under city limits, since counties aren't allowed to regulate um, land use in the way that cities are, we're seeing developers create unique products, essentially, that people can take advantage of that are keeping things affordable. And, and they're doing so in what we call municipal utility districts or MUDs, which provide the resources people need. They levy a tax, but they you don't see the heavy handed regulation that you find in cities. And I think we're going to increasingly see more of those just because of the flexibility they allow. Okay, so we need to be flexible. That's part of the solution get rid of the red tape. Um, you know, I'm amazed. I'm, I'm a former mayor. I've worked through, I don't know how many past developments, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them. And I'm amazed when I look at jurisdictions around the country, how much time it takes to get raw land and develop and build a house. I don't think people realize that. Like it can often take easily seven, 20 years to do that. Like who in their right mind would become a developer? Um, it's really remarkable. So how do we how do we lower the amount of regulation? I know that our leader of opposition, uh, Pierre Polyev in Canada, has said we need to get rid of the gatekeepers, these people who get in the way and, and it takes forever to get anything done. Is that part of the problem too? Well, I certainly think so. I mean, I think when you go, a, a lot of attention is paid to what happens at the federal level. A lot of attention is even paid to what happens at the state level. But I think so few people pay attention to what happens in their local governments. And that is where these problems are created. And if you go to, as, as, as a mayor, you probably know this, if you go to many of these local government meetings, the only people there are people who have a vested interest in seeing what they want passed. And so your average homeowner who is living a happy life, not necessarily concerned about what's going on, they're not showing up to fight these things. And I think it really is going to take 
people being more involved. I mean, we also need more and more informed and involved um, council members and locally elected officials who actually know economic policy and can recognize the damage that some of these policies um, cause. But we really need people to be more engaged in defending what is right for their communities and arguing against some of these policies because that those centralized urban planners, they're very well funded, they're very well organized, and they show up every single time. Exactly. So speaking of these local movements, it's been very interesting. I remember years ago, there was a lot of chatter and uh, a lot of marketing uh, by the usual suspects about, quote, smart cities. And smart cities was code word for more compact, building higher towers, cramming people into little boxes called condominiums and all the rest. And I'm not saying, you know, hey, if you want to make that choice to live in a place like that, hey, go for it. But a lot of people don't want to live in that kind of environment. So smart cities was interesting because if you disagree with it, it implies that you were dumb. (laughs) But in this case now, we've almost had a repurposing now of the smart city concept. Is that what 15 15 minute cities are all about? 15 minute cities? Well, 15, yeah, 15 minute cities are, are, are an absolute, absolute joke. Uh, the very idea that you and it's, this comes out of the city of Paris in, in France, uh, where a planner has basically suggested that people need to be able to get what do whatever they need to do within 15 minutes. And by the way, 15 minutes, that's walking or biking. We don't ever see cars. And by the way, they don't talk about transit either. Well, the big problem is that nobody not even, you know, that, that, that people do not work 15 minutes away from home. Wow. And, 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 and in fact, in Paris, you do have 15 minute cities. I mean, with you, you've got a population density in Paris. That's about seven times that time, that of, of Vancouver or Los Angeles, which are very dense cities. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And people like Ed, Ed Glazer at, at, oh, uh, at Harvard. On, you, this sounds like a very romantic vision. We could all go back to 19th century Paris and, and yeah. all be within 15 minute walking distance and get our baguette. <laughs> Is that what we're, how are you against that, Wendell? Well, and by the way, you could get that in downtown Toronto, too, with all the cranes. You were in Toronto a few weeks ago. I mean, what's going on in downtown Toronto is unbelievable with respect to the high-rise buildings. Mm-hmm. I see this morning a an announcement of a 60-story tower mm-hmm. um, a residential building in Vancouver. These are all impressive. They're really wonderful architecture, you know? But do you think they're going to be affordable? No. <laughs> no, it's a joke. <laughs> what does yeah. that have to do with affordability? Yeah. And remember, it's not the price of the house per se or the condominium it's the price of the land so that's right golly, um so what do you think about 15 minute cities charles is it a good good idea well it, again i think intent great outcome probably not i think you know we they have this vision of what they think a city should be but i also think that this goes back to that idea that we mentioned before about them wanting to and when i say them i mean this kind of central planning cabal wanting mm-hmm. to control everything wanting you know everything to kind of be under their government or or regu- regulatory control and that is just not the way people live that is not the way people want right. to live and that goes back to that idea about needing the flexibility to provide for how people want to live and provide for varying levels of affordability. And so, no, I mean, I think the the intent and the idea behind it, I'll give them credit, but it, it's just not realistic when you, when you right. actually take a look at what's going on and where people want to live. Exactly. So no wonder if 99% of your income goes towards paying for your house, no wonder we're going to be eating bugs um, in their vision. But uh, I hate to tell you, David, I, mean, <laughs> I, I hate to tell you, David, uh, Royal Bank of Canada data 
shows that to buy a detached house oftentimes in, in Toronto or Montreal or, or, or Vancouver requires not 99%, but maybe 120% of your income. Oh, wow. What a bright future. So speaking of that issue, and I mean this sincerely, it really concerns me about the implications of afford, like housing affordability for the next generation, let alone t- like people today. And and I I feel the pain. I really do. And I know that's a sounds like a cheesy phrase, but it's true. This is destroying the hope of the next generation. So I want to ask, how does this whole crazy thinking and policy impact our culture, how we treat each other? Like what any observations about that, Charles? Yeah, I mean, it definitely delays what you would consider normal life occurrences. I mean, people are later in getting married, later in starting families, may not do so because of not being able to afford a house of the footprint that they want or not taking a job that they necessarily want because they can't afford to live in that city. It alters so many different things that you wouldn't even think of just right off of the bat. And I think, you know, we look at affordability as being the cornerstone because housing is going to be the biggest portion of your budget. And when that sucks out everything, it limits so many other opportunities for people. And as we're seeing in a lot of cities here in the United States with crime on the rise and all these other factors that are being built in, it significantly delays what you would like to do. And and, and for the ones who can't afford it, it really does push them further out. And so I think for the culture, it's, it's having an incredibly negative impact for the folks of my generation. I'm 30, 32 going on 33. So I think around this age range and younger, is we're definitely feeling that crunch. I, I believe it. I think that's well said. So Wendell, does this type of policy through research have we confirmed that it impacts our, our birth rates oh yeah there's new research being done all over the place um, international research in europe in china uh, australia and so on that that is linking uh, housing affordability to a reduction in the fertility rate and the crucial issue here is is that differences in housing affordability. We've done some very uh, serious research on this subject in the States. We, the data isn't available, unfortunately, in Canada. But, but something like 85% of the difference in the cost of living between um, uh, the most expensive cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, and the average, 85% of the difference has to do with housing affordability. That's Richard Florida of the University of Toronto, who's well known uh, for his work in the States and Canada, basically says that when you want to know about the cost of living, you need to talk about housing affordability. That is the issue. Wow, those are very sobering insights. And I I just reflect it's, it's, it's almost like this way of thinking is a virus. And unless we pause and really think through it, clearly we don't really see what's going on. And I, I have the sense that yeah, there's this cabal, I think you've used that word, Charles, that's kind of this 1% that's trying to control every aspect of our lives. They seem to assume that they know better. Is that a fair comment? Like they seem to believe that they are morally entitled to kind of run our lives and including what kind of house you're going to live in. You can live in any kind of house you want as long as it's in this little box up in the sky on the 60th floor. Is that a fair comment, Charles? Right. And as long as you take the train to work and do everything else that they see fit. And I think you're, it's this moral superiority that, that they have um, in terms of how they their vision of the world and how they feel everyone else should live. And I think it comes a lot down to the messaging. Like you mentioned before with smart cities, if you're against smart cities, that must mean you're dumb. Well, it's the same thing with a lot of these other issues with the way that they frame them. If you are against 
against them, you are evil, you you are hateful, you don't care about poor people, all these yeah. different things that they come up with right. to shame folks into following their, their ideology and their line of thinking in this regard. And again, it goes back to that point about the outcomes aren't, aren't where they need to be. If, if you know, the outcomes promoted uh, middle class and, and, you know, protected the middle class way of life the way that they intend them to, well, then great. Yeah, you can make that argument. But we see too often that that's not the case. Exactly. So what what should be our vision, Wendell, if we look at an ideal high functioning city um, community, if we envisioned a place that actually empowered individuals to make their decisions or in the housing market and opened it up, what what should we do tomorrow? If you were these, uh, you know, the, the prime minister of Canada or the president of the United States or the governor or the premiers of these states and municipalities, how would we work together as a team to bat it out of the park and help people? Well, it's largely in Canada, as in the United States, it's largely a provincial or state issue. All of these regulations are either authorized or, or actually enacted at the provincial level. Uh, federal government in neither country does that much on housing, at least in this in this area. So you've got to move toward a more liberal uh, land use uh, regime. The critical issue is where we do not have this kind of regulation, we must not have it. If, if, if Moncton in, in, in New Brunswick or St. John uh, or St. John's in Newfoundland, if, if if metropolitan areas like that should decide to follow the, uh, the, 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 the direction that has been set by Ontario and B.C. And Ontario, by the way, that was done under Dalton McGuinney's uh, regime, not under Doug Ford. I don't th think his, his operation would have ever done that. But, but the fact is that if, if, if these places that are still regulated fairly um, follow the model, it's going to be a problem there, too. So the, my, my goal, not only in Canada, but also in the United States, is to keep the affordable markets affordable. And that means not imposing this urban containment policy that goes at the very heart of everything we know to be true about economics. All right. OK, so I think that's a great summary, Wendell and uh, Charles. But I do want to I do want to send you a curveball. And that is I could argue and I can hear the recording in my head you guys don't get it what's changed is we have a climate crisis it's existential in nature and therefore we have to impose all these rules and not only that we don't have any agricultural land we have a food security crisis i can hear the academics saying this from the universities right now and they're saying you guys don't get it and that's why we're we we have to impose this because we've got to save every scrap of land in north america to save the environment and save food? Well, first of all, in, in Canada, as in the United States, significant share of the land that used to be agricultural is not any longer. And why is that? Because you don't need it. In our country, in the United States, for example, we have taken out of agricultural production since 1950, land equal in size to the state of Texas plus the state of Washington. The, 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 the agricultural land argument is Solly Angel, NY, New York University, one of the leading urban uh, experts, uh, has pointed out and shown that there is no food security issue. There isn't a food security issue in Vancouver or Canada or Portland or the United States. And so 
um, you know, that that really is is there. As for the climate change issue, the fact is nobody has clearly made the has clearly made the case. Um, we've got uh, uh, research in Australia um, by a left wing organization, mind you, that basically showed that the greenhouse gas emissions per capita in the dense urban cores were higher than in the rural and suburban areas. Why? Because the people who lived in those areas travel a lot more, consume a lot more, etc. So, so greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 the research that would underlie such a position have simply, has simply not been done. And, you know, there's a bigger issue to be thinking about here, too. And, you know, if it comes down to, um, uh, you, you know, urban policy uh, versus poverty, I'm going to be on the side of making sure that we don't slide into poverty. And that is what we are forcing right now. The increase in the number of people that need to have affordable housing, low income housing is beyond the pale. And, and, and that's a big problem. And I think we need to focus on not forcing more people into poverty. Yeah, and on the, I think that's right. So what do you think, Charles? Well, yeah, I was going to say on the note about the environment, I think you know we, we often hear from, from the, the urban planners that you need to be in this dense urban core to minimize the footprint, and that's the best thing for the environment. But when you look, you have to look to the private sector in a lot of these instances because they recognize that, that people do care about the environment and they want their products to still be sold. So look to see what they're doing. And one of the, the um, neighborhoods or communities that we looked at in a previous project we did was it's a community owned by a corporation called the Howard Hughes Corporation. And it's the name of the communities, the Woodlands. And they have a number of different communities like this. And when you look at what they do when it comes to environmental resources, whether that's, you know, collecting rainwater and kind of refiltering it to for all the, the landscaping and just different things like that, that they've built into it because they understand that the customers that they're trying to serve desire that. And also because they're a large company and actually do care about the environment, you recognize that that a lot of those issues aren't actually issues in some of these areas. And, you know, I, I like Wendell kind Kind of mentioned before, I think idling in a car downtown for all day is going to is going to uh, be much more detrimental to the environment than having a short trip to and from somewhere you're going um, without having to deal with all of that. And so, I think a lot of those arguments they want to make just to kind of continue that idea of, of compacting everyone downtown. But with new technology and with the private sector attempting to respond to a lot of these concerns, a lot of them are alleviated. You know, I think those are brilliant summaries, and surely, surely we can walk and chew gum at the same time. It almost seems like they're creating these false dichotomies and crises and fear to say, well, you know, if you, if you, do, if you care about the environment, you have to do it this way. When in fact, no, there's multiple considerations and you have to balance this out. But from a primary fundamental point of view, we need to have housing affordability. Otherwise we don't have a future. I, that's how I see it. Is that a fair comment, Wendell? No, ab absolutely. I mean, the, the cost of living is a function of housing affordability. Right now, these regulations threaten to destroy the middle class. They're certainly making it smaller. And it is amazing to me that you can't find a politician who isn't concerned about housing affordability. Canada, the United States, they all talk them. But what do they do to, to check up on it? It was Charles was talking we need to be thinking about outcomes here. We do not solve problems by passing legislation. We solve problems by passing legislation that has the intended outcome. And that 
is what's not happening at this point. Right on. So we need to get out of these um, this fiasco. We need to cut the regulations. We need to, um, boy, I, I think of the, the old movie Free Willy. We need to free up uh, the ability of the private sector to build more houses and create that supply so people can have a future. So what can we as citizens do to speak up and get at this issue? I think a lot of people feel really depressed and disempowered uh, about this issue. So what, what are the actions you could do tomorrow? Um, should they call their representative? What should they do? Well, I think, first of all, I think you hit the nail on the head. People do feel kind of depressed and, and powerless about this. And that's how they want you to feel. Because if you feel that way, you're less likely to actually do something. And and Good I point. do think I do think it comes down to, to first of all, paying attention to what's going on in your community, in your city, and in your state. So getting a general baseline of what is happening, what's driving the inaffordability, what's driving the, the cost of living up. But then, yes, it's being engaged with your city council members and state representatives, because those are the people making obviously making the policies and they're currently only hearing from a very small percentage of people who are pushing these other policies that don't work. And I think what often, you know, people think that elected officials just know more than we do just because they're elected officials. But quite frankly, they don't always know more than we do, particularly because they all have subject areas that they're focused on and this might not be something that they're well-versed in. And so they do need to hear from people. So I would encourage people to do that because what we're seeing right now, especially at the local level, is that instead of taking you know a hard look at the policies that they're passing that are driving up cost of living, they're taking the easy road out by doing the you know subsidized housing, by passing things like guaranteed basic income, Income just to subsidize your general cost mm -hmm. of living and all of these easy measures out because those are popular, much more popular than mm -hmm. going against the centralized urban planners. And so I think they really need to hear from people. And I think people would be shocked how little effort can can have a big impact because a lot of these elected officials don't ever really hear from people, if, if at all. So um, so I'd encourage them, yes, to, to reach out, to get a general idea of what's going on, what bills are passing through their legislature, and then have a voice on them. And it's not showing up every day. You know, some people um, are paid to do that and have the ability to do that. Most people who are working and taking the kids to soccer games and living life don't have the ability to do that. But it only takes a few minutes to make a phone call or tweet or Facebook post or something and rally your community together for what you guys feel is necessary. I agree, Charles. What about you, Wendell? What should a citizen do? Well, you know, obviously contacting uh, people in city government, regional government, like Metro in Vancouver and so on, um, and, and raising concerns about these things. Um, but, but I think it's real important to, to try to get the public officials to look at the economics. They're not doing that. They don't even engage with us. You know, they, 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 they have all sorts of little ideas that, that, that they think are going to solve the problem. And the fact is, unless you get at the problem of the cost of land, there's nothing you can do. Um, you know, if you think about the way a housing market works at that urban growth boundary, the price goes up like that. Now, we could make some zoning changes up here, but you know what? We still got that. And, and that's the big issue. So... Let's free Willie. Let's get the land on stream and get this affordability mess cleaned up. There's a lot at stake. This is hurting people and we've got to get it back on board. So thank you so much, Wendell Cox, Senior Fellow at Frontier and also with the Urban Reform Institute and the president of the Urban Reform Institute, Charles Blaine, for joining us. Thank you so much for this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.